The Bob Murphy Show, episode 142. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show This one, we're gonna have another geek out episode, so I hope you folks are ready. What I wanna do is explain what John Nash did in his doctoral dissertation that he got in math at Princeton. And uh, a lot of this was captured in film form, the movie A Beautiful Mind, starring Russell Crowe, that I'm sure many of you have seen. And so uh, Nash is, that's where we get the, the term Nash equilibrium, if you've heard of that. And so this, concept that he developed in his dissertation is huge in game theory. It's it's basically the foundation of game theory of, well, at least of non-cooperative game theory. So we're going to talk about that in this episode. And before I get into the specifics of what Nash did, let me make sure you understand that the movie was totally wrong. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not just being a hyper-purist and like, oh, they didn't quite get the subtlety. No, no, it was exactly backwards. Okay, so in case you're you're hazy and just to jog the memory of those of you if you've seen the movie, so Russell Crowe is playing John Nash. Judd Hirsch is his dissertation advisor, you know, the guy who was Alex in Taxi. And, and he's, you know, I'm horrified, stupefied, terrified of you, right? So that's the character, if you remember that accent that Russell Crowe had. And so... They're in a bar, and this is where Nash allegedly has his, you know, insight where he gets the idea for his dissertation to come up with his new idea. So he and his buddies are in a bar in the movie, and they're looking at a group of girls across the way, and, you know, they're all coming up with strategies they're going to use, and Russell Crowe realizes that, oh, no, if you guys do what you normally would do, you know, every man for himself, and you go hit on the prettiest girl in the group, she's going to rebuff you. And then her friends are going to be insulted if you then, like, turn to them as second fiddle. And so he says, Adam Smith was wrong. What we need to do is all concentrate on the on the playing girls and da-da-da, ignore the... Pre-. Okay, so what he's saying there is rather than each man for himself and try to do what's individually in your own interest, if we work together as a team, it'll be better for all of us, right? So that's that's the idea there. And he's explicitly saying Adam Smith was wrong. And then later in the movie... When he hands in his dissertation to uh, his advisor, his advisor flips through it and says, you understand, right? This is overturning 200 years of economic wisdom or something like that. And, and Russell Crowe's all giddy for, yep, I know. Okay, so you would think from that movie, and I'm sure everybody understands that Ron Howard, the director of that movie, was dumbing it down. But you would get the idea that, oh, economics since the time of Adam Smith was based on rational self-interest and what john nash did was come along and teach people to be social and to think of the good of the group and hey you know actually ironically if you do what's best for the group it's better for you too rather than just thinking about yourself okay so that's what you would think and what i want to say to you is no 
it's not just that that's a little off. That is exactly the opposite of what Nash did in his dissertation. All right, so specifically, before I forget, let me mention, what's amazing about his dissertation is that it was 27 pages long. And there were only two citations in the, in the you know, work cited. And one of them was a paper that Nash himself had earlier published. All right, so the only outside work he cited was the Theory of Games book that had been developed by John von Neumann and Oscar Morgenstern. Okay, so you know that's the von Neumann, the 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 jack of all trades, the polymath who has made contributions in several fields. Probably one of the most creative, intelligent people of the twentieth century. Okay, and Oscar Morgenstern is literally an Austrian economist who uh, you know collaborated with him on their famous book on the theory of games and economic behavior, where they basically invented game theory. Okay, so again. In his doctoral dissertation, John Nash, it was only 27 pages long, and he only cited two things, one of which was one of his previous earlier papers. So that's unheard of. I mean, basically, in your doctoral dissertation, you cite everything under the sun to prove that you are in command of this little niche that you're now going to contribute to. And so the fact that Nash you know, had such an original idea that they let him get out <laughs> with that is pretty amazing. Now... But back to my main, my main uh, point here is it was the opposite of what the movie portrayed. So here, let me just read to you from the introduction of his dissertation. And you'll see what I mean. So this is Nash's introduction. Von Neumann and Morgenstern have developed a very fruitful theory of two-person zero-sum games in their book, Theory of Games and Economic Behavior. This book also contains a theory of n-person games of a type which we would call cooperative this theory is based on an analysis of the interrelationships of the various coalitions which can be formed by the players of the game. Our theory, in contradistinction, is based on the absence, and absence is underlined, of coalitions, and that is assumed that each participant, uh, I can't even read the, what that word is, some word independently, without collaboration or communication with any of the others. Okay, and because this was on a typewriter, and what I'm looking at is a PDF of a scanned version of it, so I can't quite make out what the word is that there. But the point being, Nash is saying, von Neumann and Morgenstern, they developed what is called cooperative game theory, where the players form coalitions, and then you know they had a bunch of rules about you know if, if, if coalitions were stable, if the individuals you know got more from joining the coalition than they could get on their own, that sort of thing. And what Nash is saying is, we're, we're putting that analysis aside. What I'm developing here in this doctoral dissertation is non-cooperative game theory, where it's every man for himself, and he's going to develop an equilibrium concept based on the individual level. So again, to repeat, what Nash is doing is taking what was the conventional wisdom, the framework that economists had been using, which was considered cooperative game theory, where people join teams and do what's best for the team, and Nash is rejecting that in favor of an approach where he's going to model individuals as looking out for their own utility or payoff function. And that's what they're maximizing. And something's only stable if the strategy profile maximizes the individual's payoff. Okay, so <laughs> the depiction in Ron Howard's movie, A Beautiful Mind, could not have been more wrong about, like I said, it's, it's the opposite of, of what happened. It would be like, I don't know, a movie about Mises called An Austrian Mind where he says the business cycle is caused because the government doesn't interfere with interest rates or something. I mean, I, I don't, 
Wouldn't that be a horrible movie? Oh, it makes me shudder. The other thing, just incidentally, is John Nash in real life was, quote, crazier than they portrayed in the movie. Okay, so in the movie, you know, he was delusional, paranoid, schizophrenic, but they had it like he thought that, uh, you know, he was working for the government and, you know, to crack codes and whatever. And he was a spy. And of course he wasn't. That was all in his head. And there weren't people from the government out to get him. In real life, and, and I know this from Sylvia Nassar's book, Nash would do things like he would go into the faculty lounge at Princeton and he would throw the New York Times on the, on the coffee table. And, you know, the other faculty would be like, what's that? He'd, hey, everyone, you, you see that headline there on the New York Times? And yeah. He goes, that's aliens communicating with me. And he was serious, right? So that's the kind of stuff that, <laughs> that the real John Nash got into when he was, you know, uh, not doing so well. So anyway, there you go. Now, as far as what he did, so the equilibrium concept, well, what he does is he looks at a game and he, and he defines a game by saying, okay, there's N players, where N's an integer, and each player has a set of pure strategies that he or she can, can use during the game. And then you can define a payoff function such that, you know, given what each strategy of each player is, you know, any particular element of the strategy set of each player, then you put them all together for a strategy profile, you know, one potential strategy from each player all put together for a particular outcome of the game. And then the payoff function is defined for all such combinations or permutations. And then that gives you a list of, of the payoffs that each player receives under those circumstances. All right. And so then given that structure in equilibrium, and so we now call it Nash equilibrium, obviously in his paper, he didn't call it that, but a Nash equilibrium means, so, so it's defined in terms of a strategy profile, right? So a, a particular example of a strategy that a given player is going to use for each player in the game so given a profile of all those, like a, a vector, if you will, of all those p potential things, if each what each player is called upon to do in that profile is a best response to what everybody else is doing in that profile, and that that's true for every single player, then the whole profile constitutes a Nash equilibrium. Right? So let me say that again. A Nash equilibrium, it's not defined in terms of the payoffs, it's defined in terms of the strategy choices. So uh, what is candidate for Nash equilibrium would be is a strategy profile and it's got to have the following characteristic that for each player you need to check and say given what this player is supposed to play in this ostensible equilibrium is that a best response for this player you know is this player maximizing his payoff given what everybody else is doing right so we're not asking is this the best possible payoff in general that the player could get. No, the question is, given what everybody else is doing, is this the best that the player can do for him or herself? And then if that is true for every player, then the whole profile is a Nash equilibrium. All right? Now, the only complication is that Nash also allowed, besides the pure strategies, he also allowed for what's called mixed strategies, where a person could assign probability weight to one or more of the pure strategies. Okay, so again, once you first specify what the pure strategies are for each player, and the strategies could be different, right? So in other words, it's, it doesn't have to be a symmetrical game where each player has the same types of strategies. It, it could be a very, it's a, it's a general framework. So you can handle all kinds of games 
Like if you know one player deals out cards and the other player makes some choices, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that you could do. But the idea is besides each specifying each player's set of possible pure strategies, Nash also allowed for mixed strategies where basically the player's randomizing that instead of playing a pure strategy or in a sense putting 100% probability weight on any one of the pure strategies, instead you spread the probability weight around. So maybe you do a 50-50 weighting of two of your strategies. You could do 80% on one strategy, 5% on another, 5% on another, 10% on a third or a fourth. You know, you could do all kinds of stuff like that, right? So that's the, that's the framework. And then what Nash proved mathematically was given that setup and assuming that the payoff function was, was bounded, right? So that there weren't infinite payoffs, then he could prove there always exists at least one Nash equilibrium. And it might involve mixed strategies. Okay, so that that's what that's what it was. He also did some other stuff, but that was the essence of the of the contribution. The, the other things he defined, I frankly don't even know. But we certainly didn't use it when I le- learned game theory in grad school. The the other stuff he gets into in his paper, but that was the the seminal contribution to define you know to to structure a game the way he did with its elements, and then to define this equilibrium concept and to prove that there always exists at least one such equilibrium for any game under some very weak conditions. All right, so let me illustrate the concept of Nash Equilibrium with a simple game. And by the way, folks, the way this episode's going to work is it's going to be like playing Frogger. It's going to get progressively harder or more difficult as we continue. So in the beginning here, let me give a, a simple illustration so you get the basics. And then the further on we go, I'll get into some deeper stuff. So... The game we'll use, to me, this is the easiest one to illustrate the concepts, is the familiar children's game, Rock, Paper, Scissors. So for foreign listeners, in case you don't have the the benefits of this wonderful game, the idea is there's two players, and they each can do rock, paper, scissors, and you you can do it with your hands, right? So uh, if you put your hand flat out, that's paper. If you sort of make a cutting motion with your pointer finger and middle finger, then that's scissors. And if you do a bald fist, that's a rock. And so the idea is, if you do the same thing as the other person, it's a tie. And so you go like, like the way we do it, you go one straw, straw, shoot. And then you, each player, you know, puts out their hand with the, whatever they're choosing at the same time. And then you, you see which, what you did, you know, what the other person did. So if it's the same thing, if two people put out scissors, then it's a tie. But the other, the hierarchy goes, if one person puts out a, a rock and the other person puts out paper, then the paper wins because the paper goes and covers the rock. If one person puts out a rock and the other person puts out a scissors, then the rock wins because the rock smashes the scissors. But if one person puts out a scissors and the other person puts out paper, the scissors win because the scissors cut the paper. All right, so that's the way the game works. So if you were going to try to model that game using Nash's framework you would, of course, say, that, you know, there's two players, N equals two, and each player has three pure strategies, namely rock, paper, scissors. And then the payoffs go like this. And here, I'm being a bit arbitrary. So uh, the obvious choices are going to be the numbers I'm going to use. But for the purists out there, you needn't do the numbers the way I'm doing it. Okay, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get into that too deeply here, but I just want to acknowledge that, that if like on a, on a game theory exam, if someone said model the children's game, rock, paper, scissors, and someone put in numbers that weren't the same as the ones I'm going to say to you now, 
it wouldn't necessarily be wrong. For one thing, if you just multiplied everything by two, then it would be totally fine. Okay, so the obvious, uh, though, payoffs to use for this game would be to say, okay, and, and remember, you got to define the payoffs in terms of the interaction of the various strategies that the players could use. And so you have to go and look at every combination. So, for example, if, and we're going to do the pure strategies first. And actually, why don't I just go ahead and say the result? There is no Nash equilibrium in pure strategies in this game. And that's why I like picking it because it illustrates this issue. All right. So there's no profile of strategies for player one and player two that are pure strategies such that given what the other player is doing, each player is best responding. There does not exist such a profile of strategies. So let's just go ahead and, and run through that. So we got to check each, each possible combination. And so is it possible, like, okay, both players play scissors. Is that a Nash equilibrium? No. Just check for player one, for example. For player one, given that the other player is playing scissors, is player one content to play scissors? No, he's not. He would rather play rock because if, he, if they both play scissors... Oh, sorry, I didn't see the payoffs. So if they, if they play the same... So first you got to define the game, define the payoffs. Then you can check to see if Nash equilibrium exists. Sorry, I forgot that step. So for this game, the, the obvious way to do it would be to say if they, for any scenario where they each play the same strategy, the payoff to both players is zero. And then for a scenario where one player wins, the other player loses, the winning player give him a one and the loser gets a negative one, right? That's the obvious way to, to model this game. Okay, so given that that's the payoff function in pure strategies, now I want to claim there does not exist a Nash equilibrium in pure strategies. And so I'm just going to give you the flavor of it that you, know, you could go through and exhaustively chuck each one if you wanted to, but just to give you the, the way it would work is you'd say if they play the same strategies, then each player actually wants to deviate and do something different. By the way, that's, that's more than you need. All you need for, there not to be, for something to not be in equilibrium is just at least one player doesn't want to play that what's assigned to him in the, in the profile. But in this one, it would happen to be the case that both players would want to deviate if they were playing the same thing. And then in a situation like where player one plays rock and player two plays scissors, check to see if that's a Nash equilibrium. Well, player one's happy, right? Given that player two is playing scissors, player one is certainly happy playing rock because he gets one and that's the best he can do under the circumstances. Given that player two is playing scissors, the most player one can get is a one in his payoff namely when he plays rock, so he's perfectly content to play rock. So he's not going to break that equilibrium or that uh, suggested equilibrium, but player two will. Given that player one is playing rock, player two does not want to play scissors because he gets a negative one if he plays scissors. He would rather play paper where he gets a one. All right. Or another way of saying it is, given that player one's playing rock, player two's does, it's not a best response for player two to play scissors, okay? And you could just run through all the different combinations and see in this game, rock, paper, scissors, there does not exist a Nash equilibrium in pure strategies. However, remember what I said, Nash allowed that in addition to the pure strategies, each player is allowed to use mixed strategies, which are defined as probability weights put on one or more of the pure strategies. So for this game, what the player's actual strategy space is, right, the set of all possible strategies, what the player's actually doing 
is assigning three numbers, as it were, to each of the you know rock, paper, scissors, such that the numbers are non-negative, less than one, and that all three of them added together equal exactly one. Right? That, that's the way to think about it. That's really what the strategy space is for this game. And we're just interpreting it as probability weights being placed upon rock, paper, scissors. Okay, so now we know, and I'm going to later in this episode give you a, an idea of how to Nash actually prove it, but we know that there is going to exist now a Nash equilibrium in mixed strategies because he proved it for any game under fairly weak conditions, which are being satisfied, incidentally, by this game, that they're going to exist. There's, there is going to exist at least one Nash equilibrium. Okay, so in this game, let me go ahead and tell you what it is. And then we'll talk a little bit more about what does it mean. So as you can probably guess, in this game, the unique Nash equilibrium is the one in which each player assigns a one-third probability to each of rock, paper, scissors. And then that's, that's a Nash equilibrium. So let's go ahead and check that. All right. So given that player two is mixing one-third, 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 among rock, paper, scissors, player one is actually indifferent between all of his strategies. And so here I'm trying to think, I don't think thus far in the episode I've mentioned this complication. What Nash also did in, in when he was setting up like the, the formal definition and components of a game for in this, you know, the framework that he was going to then develop his equilibrium concept, in addition to, to explaining what the strategy space was, he defined the payoff function is being what the you know the payoffs were from the pure strategies and then the payoff from the mixed strategies he just matter-of-factly said was the linear combination of the pure strategy payoffs weighted by the probability that was assigned to it okay so in other words it was the mathematical expectation or it was the expected payout where you're weighting each outcome by its probability weight all right so in this case Given that player two is mixing one-third, 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 what you would do as player one, technically, is you would check each pure strategy. And you'd say, okay, what if I play a rock? And so here's the way you would do that. You'd say, okay, what's my expected payoff from playing a rock given what player two, that he, you know, he's mixing uniformly, or sorry, evenly across all the other three ones. And you would say, okay, there's a one-third chance and if, if I play a rock, there's a one-third chance the other player is going to play rock, in which case I get zero. There's a one-third chance the other player is going to play paper, in which case I get negative one. And there's a one-third chance the other player is going to play, what, scissors, in which case I get positive one. And so my expected payoff from playing rock, given that the other player is mixing evenly among the th three, is the way I do it. As I say, it's a one-third times zero plus one-third times negative one, plus one-third times one. And of course, that adds up to zero, right? And so the expected payoff to player one from playing this, the pure strategy rock is a actually zero, given that the other player is mixing one-third, one-third, one-third. Okay, and then you would just do that for paper and scissors as well for player one and realize for any pure strategy player one plays, the expected payoff is zero, given, again, that player two is mixing evenly. And so now, because of that, player one is actually willing 
to play any of those pure strategies or any combination of them. And so, and this is a critical thing. This is a subtlety. A lot of people, even professional co economists don't get this. So let me just spend a moment on this point. What we're, we're establishing here is that player one is indifferent among all of his pure strategies. And because of that, the way that this works, since your payoff from using a mixed strategy is just the, like the linear combination, you know, the, the weighting of the pure strategies by their probability weight, you're also then indifferent among any of the pure strategies that mix those pure strategies, okay? So it's not, so this is what the distinction I'm trying to make here. Given that player two is mixing one-third, one-third, one-third on rock, paper, scissors, it's not correct to say player one maximizes only by playing the mixed trade or the player one wants to mix in this scenario if you're trying to suggest that that's all he wants to do. So he's willing to mix. And yes, he does maximize his utility by mixing himself, but it's not that he needs to maxim or needs to mix. All right. So the rather the way Nash equilibrium works, the way you check this thing to see if it's an equilibrium is just saying, given the player two happens to be mixing one third, one third, one third, player one is content to do any of his strategies. So it would also be a best response for player one to just play scissors or to just play paper because his payoff is zero from either, any of those. Player one also would be willing to mix 80% on paper and 20% on scissors and 0% on rock. That would also be a best response, all right? So I'm just driving home this point to make sure you understand how this actually works, okay? And then, of course, again, we're, we're checking because a, a moment ago, I, I just asserted that the unique equilibrium in this is where each player is mixing one-third, one-third, one-third. So now I've established, given that player two is mixing one-third, 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 player one would be perfectly happy to himself use the strategy one-third, one-third, one-third. So he, you know, that, check that box. And then by symmetry, the same thing would be true of player two. Given that player one in this asserted or stipulated equilibrium is playing one-third, 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 player two would be willing to do the same, all right? So that's why the strategy profile where each player evenly mixes across the pure strategies is an Ash equilibrium. Given the other player is doing that, the other player is, is willing to, to reciprocate, okay? But again, I, I want to be clear here. It's, it's not that given that player two is mixing, player one's thinking, oh, I have to mix to, to, you know, to hide things or I, I got to keep player two guessing. I mean, that's what you're thinking in terms of the real world and the psychology involved and whatever, but I'm just stressing mathematically, that's not what you're doing when you verify that this is in fact a Nash equilibrium. All right, and I'll come back to that maybe in a, in a bit about like, what does it mean, man, to talk about Nash equilibrium? But right now I'm just explaining to you mathematically how it works and how you would check it. Okay, in fact, well, actually, I think maybe I will, I will just go ahead and do that at this point. So the, the significance of it, one way of motivating it is to say, if you were to play somebody repeatedly with rock, paper, and scissors, if you just always, you know, if you had any strategy besides randomly doing one-third, 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 that the other player eventually would learn what your strategy was and would adapt to it, and then you would, you would lose. You know, you, you would make less than, you would, you would earn a negative amount in expectation in the long run. 
Okay, so that's that's a very common sense way to interpret that result and to say, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But in some other types of games, that's actually problematic. All right, so I'm not going to pursue this right now. In one of the other Bob Murphy episodes, Bob Murphy Show episodes, I talked about my experience in grad school. It was when I was responding to Brian Kaplan's Why I'm Not an Austrian, and I started the episode by just listing some anecdotes from, you know, quote, crazy things that mainstream economists had done, especially the ones, you know, that I had encountered in grad school. And I talked about some of this stuff. So if you want to go review that, I'll, I'll, I'll get into it more there. But suffice it to say, if you actually model repeated games, and in particular, the prisoner's dilemma, right? So if you play a prisoner's dilemma like 10,000 times in a row with the same person, the same opponent, or let's just call them the same other player to not load the, the deck, the unique Nash equilibrium is that both players defect every single time, even though if you both cooperated for the first you know, 9,800 rounds, you'd both make a lot more payout than if by, by uh, you know, what's called defecting the whole time through. Okay, so it's it's not so obvious that really a, something that's a Nash equilibrium makes sense in, in a one-shot game makes sense because you can think, oh, because if we played this game a bunch of times in a row, we'd eventually settle down into this equilibrium where you know each player is protecting himself. In general, that's not the case. In particular, if you've got a game where there's a, a non-equilibrium outcome that Pareto dominates... The, the equilibrium outcome where the, both players by moving away from the equilibrium could both be better off. Whereas in this rock, paper, scissors game, that's not possible. Like this really is a zero sum game where there, you know, there's no benefit to cooperation. Okay. So there's that element. W what I would say is the, the one interpretation of this Nash equilibrium in its raw form that I think makes total sense is if you're going to use it in an evolutionary context where you're modeling quote, strategies adopted by organisms in an ecosystem to see, you know, how well does this, quote, strategy work vis-a-vis -vis all the other ones in the ecosystem, right? So you could do something like hawks and doves or predator and prey more, more generically, things like that. And as the amount of predators go up, you could view that as like increasing the probability on the aggressive outcome or, or strategy choice. And the, so the reason I like that is if you're viewing it as being, as the quote strategy, actually not being something that's consciously chosen by a rational opponent, but rather by something that's the, the genes are causing to happen, then, you know, you don't have to worry about these issues of things like, oh, well, gee, well, can't we be smart and realize if we cooperate for 500 rounds, then we'll do better than blah, 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 you know, so that kind of stuff. So it makes more sense to me in that context and where, the genes don't care about the fact that, oh, we're going to interact with each other time after time. You know, that's a very short-sighted thing. And what, what gives the immediate best, quote, payout right now is the thing that the genes are going to do. It, to me, that makes more sense. So again, just to repeat, this idea of Nash equilibrium has been used in biology for what's called evolutionarily stable strategies. And, and that, that's like the only context, I think, where the, the procedure works without any sort of head scratching and making you think, eh, I can, I can come up with scenarios where this actually isn't very compelling. Hey folks, let's take a break from the discussion to mention if you like this kind of talk, well, there's a lot more where that came from, but you got to go to Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom where I have two separate courses on the history of economic thought and uh, it's good stuff. 
uh, in all seriousness, it's things that I was really glad that Tom gave me the opportunity to get my thoughts down because I, you know, it's not that I get to talk about some of these issues in other venues. And so it was a good spot for me to talk about all sorts of things, Robert Lucas, John Nash, Keynes, and so forth. Very important. If you're interested and you want to peruse, don't just go to his website, go through my link. So that way, if you go ahead and get the course, I get a little something for the effort. You know what I'm talking about? So go to that link at bobmurphyshow.com slash 142. Okay, let me now mention there is some, I don't know, philosophical is the right word. There's a lot more packed into this notion of expected utility than Nash discusses in his paper. And I don't know if it's because he was a mathematician and not actually an economist, and so he didn't realize all the baggage that was involved or if he did realize and didn't want to get into it. But what's interesting, like, for example, if I had been a referee of a paper and he turned this 27-page paper in, I would have asked, I would have said, yeah, this is a great result and everything, but I would have asked, hey, can you talk more about the fact that you're saying here the payoff from mixed, a mixed strategy is just the you know, expectation of the, the payoffs from the pure strategies that it involves? There's a lot built into there. So let me just make sure you're, you folks are understanding the, the issues involved. What he's basically doing is saying, for example, if there's two possible pure strategies and I know what the prize is going to be if I do either of those, and then I want to say, well, what's, how should I evaluate a lottery that, for example, has a 50-50 weight over either of those outcomes? What Nash is saying is that, oh, the way you value the lottery is it's just you know, one half times the payoff of the one plus one half times the payoff of the other. And in general, that's not true, all right? So think of it in terms of, think of it in terms of dollars, right? Like suppose there's one choice that gives you $100 and another choice that gives you $0 and a third choice that gives you $50. It's not obvious that you would value a lottery that gives you a 50-50 chance between the 100 and the zero, the same as you would value a lottery that gives you the $50 with certainty. All right, so I'll just say that one more time. If you have a 50-50 chance of getting either $100 or $0, or you have a 100% chance of getting $50, it's certainly not obvious that those things should be equivalent to you. And, in, you know, and there's a famous thing in the history of economics it's called the St. Petersburg paradox where uh, Daniel Bernoulli developed the math to, sh to show how you, you would handle something like that. So the, the idea is in general, you would think of people at least in certain ranges of their income are risk averse. And actually you would strictly prefer having the $50 for sure rather than the 50-50 mix between $100 and zero, right? And th this is how economists typically explain why people buy insurance, even if it's not quite actuarially fair. Okay, so... Now, it's not that there's a, a problem with what Nash is doing because strictly speaking, the way economists talk about it, again, even though Nash didn't really get into this stuff in his paper, he just called it the payoff function and just asserted real matter-of-factly and then moved on with his life that the payoff from a mixed strategy is just you know the probability times the pure payoff amounts. But economists now, when they talk, when they you know use game theory and talk about Nash equilibrium or whatever, what they'll call those payoffs is the von Neumann-Morgenstern utility payoffs. 
And so what that's talking about is in the basically the work that pioneered, you know, created game theory as we know it, namely the theory of games and economic behavior that von Neumann and Morgenstern had written, there they developed this approach to, you know, how do we deal with behavior under uncertainty? And so they had this idea of lotteries and, and how do people have preferences over lotteries? Okay, so this is all, there's a whole literature on this expected utility theory. So the idea is that the payoffs in these games are not dollars, but in fact are utils, right? So it's the utility you're getting if that outcome were to happen, if you were to play that pure strategy given what everybody else is doing. And what von Neumann and Morgenstern did was they came up with a bunch of uh, axioms on people's preferences and, and, and over lotteries such that you could construct a utility function that assigned cardinal numbers to each pure outcome such that you could view their behavior as maximizing the mathematical expectation of that von Neumann-Morgenstern utility function. Okay, so in other words, ordinarily ranking the lotteries in terms of which, do, which lottery do you think is best, you know, second best and so on, that ordinal ranking would always be such that the lotteries that you, you know, if you preferred one lottery to the other, it's because the mathematical expectation of the cardinal utility function of that first lottery was higher, you know, taking the probability weights times whatever the, the, the cardinal numbers where you assign the pure outcomes gave you a bigger number than if you did that same procedure with the second lottery, okay? So it's real cool stuff mathematically what they did. And then economists, you know, talked about that. Wow. And this is incidentally, if you really want to get into this stuff, and if, especially if you're an overachiever and you, you sort of, like you're at the, the tip of understanding what I'm talking about, but it's not, it's, it's eluding you just a little bit. You go look up what's called the LA paradox, all right, and, and there he goes through. So I'll link to, of course, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 142. So I'll give you a good link to something that explains it. Well, I mean, the Wikipedia article is probably fine, but I'll, I'll, I'll check that and I'll link to something good about that. But that will really drive it home for you. So in particular, this economist, Alay, uh, came up with, and apparently he developed it at a, at a, and went around at a conference and was like deploying it on people in real time and you know, blowing up economist world worlds uh with it all right so he's he's gonna present you with the choice between some lottos or some lotteries all right and what's going to happen is given how most people respond to these choices it turns out that you violate the axioms that von neumann and morgenstern developed and that there does not exist a cardinal utility function that they could assign the payoffs for your pure strategies in order for, to construct you know, the, this von Neumann-Morgenstern utility theory or this utility. All right, so in particular, so you get to, first of all, this is your first choice. You get to choose between $500,000 with certainty, right? So that's one choice. Or you can choose between a 10% chance of winning 2.5 million, an 89% chance of getting 500,000 or a 1% chance of getting zero right? So again, so this first choice in door number one, you just get 500 grand for sure. That's one option. Or the second option for choice one 
is you have to play this game of chance. And in this game of chance, there's a 10% chance you get 2.5 million, an 89% chance you get 500,000, and a 1% chance that you get zero. Okay, so what, what do you choose between those? So you go ahead and think about that. Now, secondly, you got to make a different choice now, new, new issue. You get a choice of, again, it's a lotto, an 11% chance of getting 500,000 or an 89% chance of getting zero, okay? That's one option versus a different lotto where you get a 10% chance of 2.5 million or a 90% chance of zero, okay? So now in these choices, and you know, I don't know how you chose listening to this stuff, is that most people prefer A to B, you know, of the, of the first choice, the first thing versus the second one. So most people would rather get the $500,000 for sure rather than that lotto where there's a 10% chance of getting 2.5 million, 89% chance of 500,000 and a 1% chance of zero. Okay, so most people prefer A to B and that's fine. You know, we're not saying that's wrong, okay? However, when it comes to that second choice, most people would prefer the last option, right? They would, they would prefer namely a 10% chance of the 2.5 million as opposed to an 11% chance of the 500,000 and the 89% chance of zero, right? And yet, if you, that's how you answered, then you violated one of the axioms of von Neumann-Morgenstern because there's no, there does not exist a utility function that we can assign to you, right? That, that would rationalize those choices. So you cannot be viewed, there's no way, in other words, we can assign a certain number of utils to you of how much utility you get from getting $2.5 million, $500,000 and zero. There's no three numbers we can use such that we can interpret your behavior as maximizing the expected utility of those lottos, okay? So that's, I hope uh, it, was, it was worthwhile for me to go down that path, but I know for me, it didn't fully click as to what are we doing in expected utility theory until I saw something like that. And then I, I oh, I got it, okay? So again, it's not that we're saying your, your choices are wrong or that we care about what, you know, how you answer on either of those choices. The, the point though is, if you answer the way most people in fact do, and the choice between the first two and then the second two, then there's, we can't view you as having cardinal utils that you're then maximizing the, the mathematical expectation of in terms of lottery choices, right? So that's the idea. And so I'm saying what Nash is assuming can be done to model a game where there's mixed strategies is actually somewhat dubious but he doesn't acknowledge it in his paper. He just asserts it that, yeah, let's go ahead and model a game this way. So, I mean, it's, it's fine as far as it goes. And probably for a lot of people, it seems perfectly natural that that's the way you would model a game where there's payoffs, where, where the players are allowed to flip coins as it were. But I'm just pointing out in general, it's not obvious that that makes sense. Okay. The last thing I'll mention here is how did Nash actually prove it? So again, it wasn't just that he came up with this framework. But the way I showed you guys that with that particular game, rock, paper, scissors, there does exist a Nash equilibrium, the mixed strategies. What Nash showed was that in general, there exists at least one equilibrium if you allow for mixed strategies. And so the way he did it was he used this thing that's called a fixed point theorem. So the, 
in his earlier paper, he used Kakatani's fixed point theorem and his doctoral dissertation, he used Brewer's fixed point theorem. So what this thing is, it's, it's a little bit neat how he did it. So I'll just give the, the intuition. So a fixed point theorem is just saying that if you have some function that maps onto itself, like, like the, the domain and the range are the same thing, then F of, there, there exists some F of X that equals X. Okay, so in other words, there's something that when you plug it into the function, you know, the function in general transforms the inputs into a different output. But under certain conditions, when you plug in a particular, we always know that there will exist at least one point in the domain of this thing that when you feed it into the function, the output will be the same thing that you plugged in, all right? The way to see this, just to get the idea of what it is, it's easiest to, um, to do a, a one-dimensional image of it. And so just imagine the, uh, you know, just picture the number line going from zero to one, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to take, we're going to have a function that takes any number between zero and one and plugs it into the function and shoots out some answer that's in between zero and one. And then what Brewer's fixed point theorem said is, as long as it's a continuous function and as long as that 1D element is closed and, and, and finite, bounded, then we know there's got to be a point such that F of X equals X. Okay, so the way, just the intuition, like I say, to, to just picture, to see in your mind, to see the idea of what's going on here and why it has to be true. Again, picture from zero to one, and it's important that the, it includes zero and one, it's closed, and then draw the square. So you, you go up one unit also. So now you got the square and then draw the 45 degree line, you know, so going from zero, zero to one, one. And so notice if the function ever crosses that line at that point, it's got to be the case that F of X equals X because, you know, that's the, that's the, you know, Y equals FX. That's what you're drawing, the graphing there with the 45 degree line. So now just think of it, as long as F is, you know, mapping from between zero and one, and you got to go through each of those things, and then it's got to, F has got to land somewhere in between zero and one on the Y axis. Wherever you want to start out with, whether you originally, you know, so F of zero, wherever you want that to be, you know, it's going to be like above the, that 45 degree line. And now as you continue to move right, at some point, the line, as long as it's continuous, is going to have to cross that 45 degree line. All right, that's all we're saying. I know, so it's, it's almost so trivial that when you, when you break it down like that, it seems like, oh yeah, that's obvious, but it, you know, it's, it gets more complicated in higher dimensions. But that's the idea. All right, so again, if you're picturing it in terms of the zero one interval, that you can't draw a continuous line without it crossing that 45 degree line. And that would be the spot at which f of x equals x, okay? So in the context now of, of game theory, what Nash realized was, oh, wait a minute. And, and, and so Brewer's fixed point theorem, it's not just for 1D, it's, for, it's in general, you can talk about Euclidean spaces or a subset. And so what Nash realized was, oh, if I have all these pure strategy payoffs, and then I connect them, as it were, with, with probability mass or weights and that the payoffs now are any combination of those things. It's like you're drawing lines in the payoff space connecting all the pure payoffs because, you know, like you, you got two 
payoff from this one pure strategy and a payoff from another one and just picture them as being separated in space. But now if I do 50-50 weight on each of them, now I'm also including the point that's mid midway between the two. Like if you drew a line connecting the two payoffs, the 50-50 weight, that payoff is going to be right in between the two of them. And then like a 90-10 is going to be more towards the one versus the other. So you can connect all the points on the line between those two by appropriately changing the, the weights on the mix strategy. And so you can do that with every pure strategy. And so you're doing that with all the different players. And so what you end up generating is a compact convex set, um, you know, so long as the payoffs, you know, aren't infinite and stuff like that. Okay. And so that's what, what Nash realized was, oh, wait a minute, if I'm allowed for mixed strategies, I can get this compact convex set in the payoff space and then he knew, oh, and so then that'd be real simple just to go ahead and invoke Brewer's fixed point theorem to show there must exist. Like, so if I'm basically taking a, a function that maps from strategy profiles into best responses, that there must exist a possible input such that when I feed in all the strategy choices into this best response function, out pops the things I just fed into it. And so then that's what a Nash equilibrium is. Again, if you're saying, given all these, you know, potential strategies people could be using, you plug it in, what would be best responses? And the best response function shoots out the very same things you just plugged in and said, ah, given what everybody else is doing, whatever, you know, what each player is supposed to do is in fact a best response. And then if that's true for everybody, then there you go, right? So it's, it's you, you, can, you can see the, the relationship there and why it's like, a, it's, it's a fixed point that you, you feed what, what everybody's doing into it and then say, okay, now try to optimize everybody, get what I was doing. And if everyone's like, nope, what I'm doing right now is optimal, then that's a fixed point. You know, that what you feed into it is what pops out the other end of this function. And, and then that's, you know, to intuitively interpret it and like, what does that mean? Oh, so that's what an equilibrium is. If everybody's content to just maintain the strategy that he's been assigned in this ostensible equilibrium. Okay, so that's what that's what Nash did. So there, and there, there is... So the, the genius of it, I think what happened is, you know, he obviously knew about all these fixed point theorems because he was really good at math. And then he knew about the theory of games and how von Neumann and Morgenstern had tried to model it. And then I think he came up with the idea of, oh, wait a minute, if I just, you know, he viewed each player doing it and had this equilibrium concept and realized, ah, if I just allow for mixed strategies, then it would be pretty simple to get this closed convex set um, or compact convex set, and then boom, straightforward application of Brewer's fixed point there. And in fact, his Nash's proof is like like six lines. You know, once he's set up his you know definitions or whatever. And what's funny is apparently John von Neumann, when he was shown Nash's re result, when he looked at his dissertation, apparently said, "This is trivial. It's just a fixed point theorem, right?" So, and you know whether that's fair or not because it's you know, somebody coming along and trying to advance von Neumann's work. And so maybe he was protecting his turf. But in any event, I'm reporting, that's what apparently von Neumann's reaction was, was to say, this is trivial. This is, and also there was somebody, I forget where I heard this from, but there was somebody, I think somebody told me, but I don't want to say the name in case I'm wrong, but I had heard that at NYU, somebody was asking about Nash, like in the math department, like, oh yeah, Nash was just, he was just playing games. So do that, do with that what you will. But in any event, that's how Nash actually proved it. Okay. So he, he 
it was it was kind of a clever thing. And I should say, you know, we could call it trivial, but it's even given that strategy, it does take a little bit of technical expertise to be able to figure out how to do that, right? So in other words, even if you had told, even if you if you told somebody in grad school, okay, this is the general idea, you know, here's Brouwer's fixed point theorem, here's what Nash is trying to do, now prove that there always exists a Nash equilibrium. I don't think a lot of grad students could, I don't, I don't know that I could have done that when I was in grad school at the time, even if somebody told me this is what he did, now without looking at how he did it, go ahead and do it. It's not obvious, right? I mean, you got to think of it. Once you figure it out and figure out the trick, it's simple. But my point's just, I I don't want to downplay what he did. But in any event, that's what he did. And so that is the foundation of modern game, or should I say non-cooperative game theory. And if you like this, as I said in the midpoint break there, and you want to see more things like this, then I encourage you to check out my course or my courses on the history of economic thought. I have two of them breaking up the different time periods. And my discussion of Nash, of course, comes in the 20th century component at Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. But don't just go to his website because I don't get the spoils. What you want to do is go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 142 and look at the link that I'll have to sign up for my course that way to make sure that the... um, income inequality stats don't get even worse. Thanks for your attention, everybody, and I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.